a reflex. A reflex is that involuntary or automatic action that your body does in response to something. So it's that involuntary thing you do. You don't even think about it. It just happens. And sometimes we'd rather not have some of those reflexes, like the gag reflex. You know, that's rather unpleasant. Uh, Some of you have a squeamish reflex. You see blood and you get faint. Uh, Some reflexes are great, though, like when something flies in your face and you blink without thinking uh, just to protect your eyes, or when a ball is flying toward your head and you, someone yells, heads up, and you involuntarily raise your arms to block it or to catch the pass in the back of the end zone, as Travis Kelsey will surely do this evening for the Kansas City Chiefs as they take on the Philadelphia Eagles. But here's another reflex we have, and it's more internal. Uh, And here's a recent example of this that I've been observing over and over again, actually. Uh, All my kids are playing basketball right now. They're on, I have four kids on four different basketball teams, so I'm seeing a lot, a lot, a lot of basketball games. And, uh, but every crowd I've been in, when this happens, the response is the same every time. Time's running out. It's either the end of a quarter or the end of the game. And so as time is expiring, a player ends up launching a half-court shot. If you're not familiar with basketball, that is literally a long shot, especially with the skill levels that we're talking about with some of them. Uh, it rarely goes in. Uh, but it's interesting. The response of the crowd is the same every time. Uh, the shot goes up, and you hear this, Oh, this raising voice, and then as the ball clanks off the backboard and doesn't go in, everybody goes, oh, you know, this dejected groan, and I have seen it go in, and everybody, home team, visiting team, everybody goes, yay, that was amazing. It's just reflexive. You can't control it. Everybody's just caught up in the moment, and we unthinkingly, reflexively offer our praise to this thing we've seen. Or have you ever been to a musical performance that was just incredible, like blew you away, and you, you were just so moved, you were so wowed that the, the, the audience just reflexively just stands up and just starts giving that standing ovation, yelling, encore, encore, you know, just one more. And you hear a performance like that that so moves you, and it almost seems wrong not to do that, doesn't it? Well, I think in a way it almost is. And why is that? Because you were made for praise, not for yourself. You were made to worship. You were designed and created by God to offer your affirmation and praise for amazing things. And we do it every day. There's so many things that amaze us and to give thanks for, which is great. But of course, there is one that stands alone. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. As we turn to Exodus 15, we're going to discover that thing or that one singular person who is worthy of all of our praise, namely because he is the great redeeming God. You see, the response to being saved and delivered, the response to being redeemed is worship. It's the reflex of redemption. And so as we turn to revisit this story in Exodus of how our God's a great redeemer, we're going to then be moved to song just as Israel was. So to summarize it then, the reflexive response to redemption, the thing that you just, when you've been redeemed, you must do is you must praise, you must worship, you must adore and exclaim the excellencies of this one who has saved you. So, oh, the redeemed in this room now, as you rehearse the greatness of your God as a redeemer, sing his praises and do that with your voice, and may we do that together as we leave with our lives that have been rescued.
And we're going to come across four reasons why we sing. And the first is this. We sing because we know God personally. We see this in the first three verses of this song of Israel. The first truth about redemption that moves us to praise is that we actually come to know this God and we know him intimately, personally, individually. Because you see, he saves this way. He saves individuals and those individuals are then called to praise him. That's the reflex of knowing him when he saves like this is to worship. Now, to remind you where we are, let's review what has happened very quickly Where have we been? God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt, and God brought them out. Yet, as he brought them out, he cornered them between the rock, the sea, and a hard place, and an army of Egyptians charging after them. And then in the process, God gloriously delivers them, and Moses provides the historical recounting of that in Exodus chapter 14. And we can summarize it just by going to verse 30 of Exodus 14. To pick up where we were, here it is. It says, Thus the Lord saved, rescued Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians, you know, all these massive chariots, the most powerful army on earth, dead on the seashore. Israel saw then what? The great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then the next thing we have as we turn to chapter 15 is that it says this, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. So when they saw redemption, they saw an incredible saving of their very lives. Again, they were doomed, they were helpless to be sure of their own end, and then to have that suddenly, powerfully, suddenly, and personally, and individually rescued, you cannot but just praise the God who has saved you. Now, before we read the lyrics of this song, just note that it's a corporate song. So it says here, Moses, but then the people of Israel, especially the men at the first, come out and sing the song, and then at the end, the women join them in response. But this is a song that everybody of of the redeemed, they are singing. But notice, even though everybody's singing it, the lyrics to this song as it begins are very personal. Do you see that? Notice that it doesn't start with we's and ours, but I's and my's. This is a personal God who saves individuals. Yes, he saves a mass of people. He saves all the people of Israel, but it's a mass of individuals. And he knows each one and has personally redeemed each one. So they know him as their deliverer. He's a personal God and a personal Savior worthy of personal praise. Look at verse 1 as we read it. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The song opens with the internal determination that I will praise God. This is the right thing to do. Why? Because he has triumphed gloriously. He's being magnificent in showing his power in redeeming me as he threw the horse and rider into the sea. But it's not merely that they see together redemption and they give forth praise, but we see that this work of deliverance is so powerful because, too, it is so personal. Listen to the praise of verse 2. Again, everybody's singing it. 
But it's true about each one as they proclaim God's greatness. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. As God has saved and redeemed me personally, then I will save, or I will not, not save, I will s- proclaim the excellencies of my Savior. More than this, the redeemed know how badly we need our God. How badly we need him to fight our battles for us, to be our warrior, and praise to our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are never disappointed. Just as Israel proclaims here in verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. But from the context here, it's not merely is he that a warrior out there, but he's a warrior for us. That's what this song is about. He's our defender. He fights our battles for us. And of course, wasn't that the very thing that Moses had told Israel as they were fretting about the chariots of Egypt charging down at them? Let me remind you, this is in the middle there of Exodus 14, verse 13. They're all freaking out because they're surrounded and the, Egypt, and the Egyptian chariots are coming after them. And then Moses tells them this. This is verse 13 of Exodus 14. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he says this, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you. And notice there, actually, in the Hebrew, if I recall, this is a you plural. He's going to fight for you all. You all have only to be silent. It's the idea. But more than this, now it's turned to an internal, personal response. It's not that he just fights for all of us. He's fought for me. And redeem me. He's a personal Savior because He's a personal God. He doesn't save us like a mere lifeboat. What do I mean? Uh, you can imagine those who survived the Titanic sinking, those that escaped on those lifeboats, they might say something like, I was saved by this lifeboat, but along with all the others that managed to clam- clamor aboard our ship. Now, he saves not like a lifeboat, but like a lifeguard. He sees you individually in your peril, and he dives in after you. And he comes along and takes you to save you. Each one of us in Christ, at one time or another, he comes to redeem, change us, to rescue each one. You see, in that way, then, as he is an Savior of individuals, those individuals need to turn back in personal praise. Personal praise from the heart. And what this means is we gather for worship as a church. This means worship and song. It's not a spectator sport. You you don't attend corporate worship like you go to some concert or some show. You attend as one who's been personally redeemed by Jesus to then express your praise back to him. So that's why when we gather in worship, we don't dim all the lights down. So all the focus goes up on this stage. Nor do we turn up the music, but only so loud. Why? So you, those that he's redeemed, you can sing. So you can even hear your own voice praising this one who has redeemed you. 
Worship is personally precipitatory. Why? Because Christ redeemed you personally. I love the way the Apostle Paul embodies this sentiment. We've looked at it recently. and When he describes in Galatians chapter 2, really his life of faith, or you might call it a life of worship, back to God. But he puts it like this. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Notice, this is different than what we normally read in the New Testament when he's writing to groups of Christians, to churches, where it would say something like, he loved us and gave himself up for us. And all of that's, of course, still very true. But Paul takes the gospel and rightly personalizes it, because that's also true. He doesn't just save the church. He doesn't just save a mass of people that believe. He saves each individual believer that looks to him, and he calls them by name and makes them his own so they would tell of his excellencies. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. He came down from heaven to take hell on the cross for me. And if that's true, how can I not praise him? We know God personally. So we sing. We also sing because we've been rescued. Verses 4 to 10 of this song from Exodus. This relates to what we've been talking about already, but we take a different aspect of it. He's personally our God as we remember what he has done. He's redeemed us. We sing because we've been rescued. We sing because we've already been delivered. And that's what Israel does here in verses 4 to 10. What you have in Exodus 15 with this song that Moses gives, this is that poetic retelling of God's victory at the sea. Because you understand, with great moments of redemption in history, those things get preserved often in song. That's how the stories often get told for many generations. These formative moments, these great deliverances, get preserved and enshrined in verse. And we know this even in our own country. So, for example... You could go grab a history book, and you could read about the battle at Baltimore at the end of the War of 1812. That would be the historical account, something that parallels Exodus 14, the historical telling of God's deliverance at the Red Sea. Or instead of reading the history book, you can go sing the song, The Star-Spangled Banner, that Francis Scott Key wrote as he watched the battle happen. Well, Exodus 15 is Israel's Star-Spangled Banner looking back at how he just delivered them. It's the poetic look of faith of what it felt like as God saved them. You might say what it looked like from heaven when God did what he did in Exodus 14. And what does it look like? It looked like God took a whole army of people into his own hand and just dropped them like a rock into a lake. Look at verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. It's like a child grabbing a stone and skipping it across a lake. Blip, 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 blunk, and it's gone. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. And that's despite all of the enemy's great boasts about what they were going to do. Look down to verse 9. The song personifies, what were the Egyptians thinking? And they were charging with their chariots 
at the Israelites. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. They're already picturing their victory, raising the Super Bowl trophy. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. Sounds fierce, so menacing, so imposing. And what was it like? What did the Lord do in response? Look at verse 10. Then you blew with your wind. I love that. He blows them over. It's like a child grabbing a dandelion and blowing on it and scattering all the seeds. This is what God has done to the Egyptian army. He's blown and scattered them through into the water. They sank like lead, verse 10, in mighty waters. He triumphed gloriously, redeeming his people. And in view of such a glorious redemption, such a massive annihilation of such an imminent threat, and again, such a sudden turn of events. Remember, God led them into that rock and hard place so he can rescue them out of it so gloriously. And so it looked like certain death, and then there was this unforeseen deliverance. Remember, God said, why are you crying to me, Moses? Just walk forward into the sea. Then he tells Moses, oh, and by the way, I'll split the sea open. Like, they didn't see this coming. And as it happens, and as you get across, and you get across through the waters, the same waters that are then used to destroy all of your enemies, you cannot but bow and give great praise. That's the right response to redemption. Praise. Devotion. Worship. And that's not an Old Testament theme merely. That's something that's picked up in the New Testament too. It's where Brian opened our services from 1 Peter chapter 2. There, Peter draws out this connection between redemption and worship. Why are you redeemed? It's to praise your God. Let me remind you, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why that? You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So why did he choose you in Christ? Why did he save you? Why does he sanctify you, redeem you? Why did he buy you out of sin and hell? Peter says, so that, it's for this purpose, you would proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. He redeemed you to tell forth his greatness. He redeemed you for worship. And Romans 12 points it out, we don't have time to look at it, but that worship, it's a worship we express with our whole life. Devoted to Christ, given over to obedience to his word, isn't it? And though that's absolutely true, that absolutely includes what Peter underscores for us here. Peter expressly mentions that this is a worship that has to come out of your mouth. That you may proclaim, tell out, announce, speak out loud and proud about. He saved you to tell others how great he is in saving a wretch like you. It's awesome. You get to be redeemed and then go out and tell, my God's a great redeemer. That's what he saved you for. And so that's what we got to do. We can do it in a whole lot of ways too, right? We can do it at the university campus. 
in our workplace, in the neighborhoods, as we go and tell the world, there is a great God and he shows mercy to sinners. So we evangelize. We tell others the gospel. We also do it not only in our community, but we do it among the nations. We send out missionaries. We, we even go ourselves to speak about Christ to people who've never heard, to proclaim again, there's an excellent God who has made you, but he's also come to redeem you. Trust in him. But do we not also proclaim his excellencies? Do we not also tell it out and speak it forth as we sing? Oh, absolutely we do. Christ did not pay for your sins so you can just stand up and be quiet in corporate worship. He didn't come and redeem you so you can kind of just stand there and mouth the words. He didn't come from heaven to die on the cross for you so you, you can just approvingly nod your head to the tunes. He drew you out of darkness. He drew you out of death. He drew you out of sin so that you would sing about him. So you would proclaim there's an excellent Savior and his name is Jesus. But Rick, ah, most Sunday mornings I really don't feel like singing. What well, can I tell you something? This isn't about how you feel about redemption. It's about the very fact of your redemption. Has Christ not redeemed you? Then he's worthy of your praise. And actually, it might be all the more astounding when you praise him and you don't feel like it because it shows how great his mercy is even still. I assure you, if you can remember what you deserve before God and yet how he came for you, he treated you, he took the cross for you, how will not our hearts be warm to him? To praise our God. Okay, Rick, but you understand, I have a horrible voice. Nobody wants to hear me singing. Well, can I make a confession? One of the elders of your church has a horrendous singing voice. I know, because as Bill leads us in every elders meeting on Tuesday morning, we sing a hymn together, a cappella. There's no coverage. There's no guitar to drown you out. There's no piano. Just voices. And honestly, I didn't really believe that someone could be actually tone deaf, but this brother has made me a believer. <laughs> honestly, almost every word he sings, I think, is actually off key. Like, every note is wrong. I don't even know I could do that on purpose. But the brother keeps singing. I mean, why? Isn't it kind of embarrassing? Isn't it kind of distracting? Do you know why this man sings? Because he's been redeemed. And I know there's one in heaven who wants to hear his voice. That's why he's saved. Because that's redemption's reflex, is to praise. And so if you're not singing, why not? Could it actually be because you're not redeemed? That you haven't trusted Christ? You haven't really seen how hopeless and lost you are without him? That you don't realize how great the salvation is. You're kind of wondering, why does anybody sing? 
though I think for most of us here, it's, we're hesitant to sing, I think most of all, because we've forgotten. We're more focused on us. We're more focused on what people think about us. And we fail to remember the gospel, what we deserve, what he has done, and that he redeemed us anyway. So don't lose sight of why he rescued you. He rescued you to proclaim how excellent a savior he is. Third, we sing because we marvel at God's greatness, verses 11 to 13. We sing because as he's redeemed us, we realize there's no one like him. He's incomparable. And that's the refrain we discover next in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You know, Moses, as he came to Pharaoh the first time, Pharaoh said what? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, now everybody knows the Lord. And God has shown. Not that there really are true other gods out there. That's not his point when he says, who is like you among the gods? As if all the gods are playing, you know, king of the celestial hill and Yahweh happen to win. No, he's exposed the gods of Egypt. That they're not gods at all. Do you remember this word we passed over in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, where the Lord declared that through these plagues and through his deliverance of the Passover, he said that on, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. Because Egypt, they had a God for everything. They had a God named Happy, who was over the Nile. They had a God, Heket, who was the God of the frogs. They had a God, Apis, who was the God who looks like livestock. And guess what? Yahweh was stronger than all of those, as the plagues proved. Or there was their God, Ra, the God of the sun, who couldn't pierce God's supernatural darkness in Egypt. Or there was Pharaoh himself, the very incarnation of the gods, who couldn't protect his son at the Passover. All the supposed gods of Egypt were exposed to be what they actually are, nothing, fantasies, figments of our imaginations. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, the wonders that show how strong he is? That's what verse 12 speaks of. But more than this, verse 13 tells us, it's a greatness shown not just in his power, but in his mercy. Look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. We'll see this more as we go through Exodus. Lord willing, we'll eventually get to Exodus 34. And God tells us what his name really means, that he's the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Well, it's this steadfast love that shows his glory brightest. And we see it as he guides his people, the people he has redeemed. As he's taking them, it says at the end of verse 13, to where they will be with him. So this is the astounding thing about our God. Not merely that he's more powerful than anyone else, though that's true, but he leverages that power for the good to sinners. That's what makes him unlike any other. That's where we say, your thoughts are way beyond mine, for you are good. His power is on display, not merely as he 
destroys enemies, but most of all, his power and greatness are on display as he saves sinners and brings them to know him. And that's the hope and glory of what awaits all those in Christ, all those that he has redeemed. Because what awaits us? Heaven. And do you know what or really who is in heaven that you get to be with? Your Redeemer. And you will know his steadfast love more than you ever have. That's the declaration from Revelation chapter 21, looking to that picture It goes like this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, here's what heaven's all about, as we call it, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself may be with them as their God, but to do what? As it goes on, here's his mercy, he will then wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. Why? Because he's a great redeemer, and you will see him in all his glory. It's not merely that he's more powerful than anything you can imagine. It's that he leverages that power with mercy to give life. So who is like our God? We marvel at his greatness to bring mercy to sinners. That's why we sing. Finally, we sing because we have hope for the future then. Verses 14 to 21. Really, it's in view of this, this awesome greatness of God that makes us tremble, but that makes us sure about what's to come. So verse 14 in this song, things turn and transition. We've been talking about what God has done, and now from verse 14, we're talking about what he is doing and will do, and we're sure it will be good for his people. And he gets shown to us as he pictures first those nations that currently live in the promised land that God has promised to give to his people. And the people that live in the promised land, they're hearing that the Jews are coming and Yahweh's leading the way. And what's their response? They are terrified. Listen to all these references to fear from Israel's enemies. Look at verse 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. They are frozen with fear. Because this God, Yahweh, is coming to give his people what is theirs. And it's that very important thought that prompted a prostitute in Jericho, right, Rahab, to house these spies. The point is, with this kind of God on our side, who can stand against us if you stand with the Lord? The answer is, of course, no one. No one can stand against us. Why? He will bring all his promises to pass. None of his good purposes, despite how challenging the very moment you're in might be, none of his good promises will fall. Notice verse 17. You will bring them, speaking of God's people, and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, that is where they are, they will get to be with him. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. 
And he will assuredly do this. No one can stop him. Why? Verse 18, because the Lord will reign forever and ever. You get this. When the Lord reigns forever and ever, that means no king that comes against him can challenge him. They can't outdo him. They can't outlive him. Everyone who opposes and resists the will and reign of God will not last. And even as long as history has gone so far, as all of the philosophers and religious gurus have proven, to quote a song, Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Nietzsche, Freud, and Gandhi are dead. But Jesus Oh, he's alive. He reigns. And he rules in heaven to accomplish all the will of God and to make sure God's people make it home. So our hope for the future, it is sure. It's on sound footing. Why? Because it stands on the irresistible, indestructible life of Jesus Christ. And it's that hope that has fueled the church for millennia. That's why our great hymns, have you noticed the final verse often turns with a sure look to the future? Like, we'll sing it in a moment, how great thou art. The fourth verse goes like this, when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Or amazing grace, that's when we know. How's the final verse go? When we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Or one of my favorites, it is well with my soul, the last verse, and Lord haste the day, bring it on, when the faith will be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. That's going to be unnerving if it weren't for this, that my Lord the Redeemer descends because then I know it is well with my soul. So you see, we sing in corporate worship, yes, to express our personal praise to God, yes, because it's the right thing to do, it's our reflex, but I hope you see too, it's surely to encourage, to put gospel courage into the hearts of your brothers and sisters who've come this morning and maybe their hearts are not so encouraged. They're fighting for hope because they're struggling in this world. And we all know this. With a group this size, there are people struggling being faithful parents today. Probably this morning on the way in, actually, right? There are brothers and sisters here who are at war with recurring sins and temptations, and they're discouraged. There are some here grieving over broken relationships, saying, Lord, I don't know how you can make any good come from this. There's some mourning over sick loved ones and troubling diagnoses. There's some that just come in here, they're frustrated. They don't feel like singing. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel like there's much hope. There's not much to be joyful about. They're just spiritually blah. And so what do we do? We sing to one another. These gospel truths, putting gospel courage in their heart, reminding one another, oh, but brother and sister, he has paid for your sins. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, he's alive, interceding right now. Brothers and sisters, he sat at the wrath of God, the cross. And because he's done that, we know he'll bring the future of good to his people. We sing to one another's hearts, why are you cast down, oh, my soul? 
Why are you cast down, O my soul, that my brothers and sisters in here? Hope in God, for we shall again praise him, our God and our salvation. And we say that with hope, with assurance, because we look to the cross, don't we? That's why Paul will charge the church at Colossae like this. He says, this is Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And how will that be? Teaching and admonishing one another, of course, in all wisdom, but also by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so we sing to call one another that this gospel word would live richly here, that would teach, that we would admonish, but we would most of all here now sing. Why? Because he's our redeemer. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our great God. Let's pray and let's prepare our hearts to continue in song.